Hello, I'm Sarah Vine, and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Melt Plus. I'm joined this week and every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Coming up on today's show, a global study of self-image has found that people in the UK are among the least body confident in the world, and I would like to include myself in that. We'll be talking to the lead author behind the study to find out why, and plus we're going to be talking to Daisy Waugh, friend of the show, whose latest book is set to be another smash hit. Our guest is Professor Viren Swamy, who this week mm-hmm. published a study that asked people around the world to describe how they feel about their bodies. And the results were quite interesting, with Brits coming out as amongst the least body appreciative anywhere on earth. So we mm. thought this was quite interesting. Professor Viren Swamy joins us now. Thank you very much for taking the time. So this was a really big study. 60,000 people surveyed across 65 nations and over 250 scientists working on it together. And I'm just interested to know what your starting point was, what the sort of questions you were asking and why, really. So as you said, we are a consortium of scientists, about 250 of us working in 65 countries. And in each of these countries, we asked participants to complete a measure called the Body Appreciation Scale 2, which consists of 10 items that have statements like, I respect my body, or I'm attentive to my body's needs, or I feel love for my body. So participants rated each of these 10 statements. And then what we wanted to do was to see whether this measure as a whole works in the same way across all these different countries. And we found it did, which then allowed us to compare scores across these different countries. And which were the ones that were most happy with themselves? So we found that Malta, Taiwan, Bangladesh and Kazakhstan and South Korea were top of the list. And right at the mm. bottom of the list were Australia, India, United Kingdom and Ireland. That's interesting that you say South Korea, because I would have thought that South Korea was particularly... Is it, well, I mean, you know, they have an awful lot of plastic surgery they in do, South don't Korea, they? don't they? It's, sort of, it's one of their sort of major things. Yeah, length, length, length. Legs lengthening and also they do a lot of chin operations. Yes, yeah. and so you're a professor of social psychology. So what does it mean? What are the effects of people not having respect, love, self-confidence... I mean, I wrote about it in the paper today and I've always had a lot of self-loathing for my shape and size. And I think that's to do with all the sort of pressures that, you know, in the West, that particularly women feel. I mean, did did any of this stuff emerge? Did you manage to sort of get under the skin of it and really Is it related to get anything? a sense of what was causing it yeah. and what it was doing? So this particular study wasn't set up to understand what are the causes of body appreciation. What we did find in the study, however that individuals who had greater body appreciation were also more likely to experience greater life satisfaction. In other words, they were more likely to experience psychological well-being. And that's consistent with studies that have been conducted in multiple different countries and with multiple different populations. In general, what we do know is that negative body image is a public health concern. It's concerning because Mm. people who experience negative body image are more likely to experience poor psychological well-being, that includes low self-esteem, greater symptoms of depression and so on. It's associated with diminished confidence in social relationships. It's associated with greater likelihood of considering cosmetic surgery. It's associated with consideration of all kinds of dieting practices that are unhealthy. So we know there are significant problems. What we are trying Mm. to do as a research team is trying to find ways of promoting healthier body image, trying to promote more positive element Mm. image so people care about themselves and focus on the functionality of their bodies rather than what their bodies look like. Is it anything to do with wealth? Because there seems to be a sort of natural divide between the most confident seems to be the lower end of the financial incomes in comparison to Western countries with huge American culture. And is it money? Although weirdly, Ukraine seems to be in there, which I find extraordinary that they 
haven't got other things on their minds. Well, I don't know when the sort of survey was done. Well, that's true, yes. Yeah. So this study was conducted between 2020 and 2022, so that's when the data pl- oh, okay. went on for. So that yeah. explains that then. Yeah. In our study, we did look at things like cultural distance from the United States as an anchor, and so the divergence in cultural understandings that a nation has from the United States, the more likely they were to experience more body appreciation. We also found a relationship with greater income inequality. So generally what we suggest that countries that are more economically developed are more likely to engage in cultural practices that tell people that they need to work on the body, that the body is the most Mm. important thing, that what you look like is the most important thing in your life. And if you disengage mm. from those practices, you're much more likely to be penalised. Is that what the so-called first world problems, actually? Because I suppose if you're living in a poorer country, then you mm. don't have a lot of time to worry about how you look. Like, totally, how you look, yeah. you're just trying to get through the day. Whereas if you're very westernised and you've got lots of money, lots of spare time, and mm. too many mirrors, and possibly too many phone devices to look at yourself on, then maybe you too become many Instagram sort of, you know, your focus hits. moves, doesn't yeah. it? I would avoid kind of calling it a first world problem because, I mean, globally, for example, the majority of people in most urbanized settings experience some form of body dissatisfaction. Mm. That's really important from a clinical perspective, for example, because if you experience negative body image, you're also then more likely to experience symptoms of disordered eating. And then we're getting into Mm. clinical significance. So Mm. rather than kind of portraying it as a kind of issue that's only relevant to people in the first world, I think it's an issue that's of importance globally. And as, Mm. for example, cultures and and forms of media become more globalized, we're going to see an increase in, in Experiences of negative body image globally as well. Was there a difference between men and women? Did you find women were significantly less happy with themselves than men? So in our particular study, we didn't find a significant gender difference between women and men. But this is also consistent with studies. We generally show that when you look at it from a more positive angle, there is generally very few differences between women and men anyway. But if you look at it from a negative angle, from a more kind of psychological angle, then you do find much larger differences where women tend to experience greater symptoms of for example, body dissatisfaction, social physique, anxiety compared to men. Mm. What sort of things were people unhappy about? Was it predominantly weight or was it also skin colour? Because I noticed that India is quite high on the list and Mm. I know there's a lot of people use a lot of skin whitening creams and things in India, which is awful. Mm. But I'm just wondering whether that's partly to do with it or whether it is just usually size and shape. So this isn't something we specifically looked at in, in our study. Our study, again, it was focused on what we call body appreciation, which is a kind of general mm. care and love for the body. But you're right. I think the aspects that some people might be dissatisfied will, will vary from culture to culture. In the West, for example, the dominant kind of ideology is that women need to be thin, to be slender, to be perceived as attractive, to be perceived as feminine. Mm. But that ideal, although it has become globalized, will vary in kind of the importance that Mm. it has for women locally. Like you said earlier, I think, for example, in East Asia, there are diverging ideals. Height is an important one, kind of facial Mm. attractiveness is another one. In general, though, what we find is that globally, the kind of systems of beauty, the systems that tell us that we are inadequate as we are right now, tell women in particular that they need to be slender. And with men, that messaging is... Yeah, no, you you need to be basically a thin white blonde, unfortunately. And with men, that messaging is slightly different. It's become more important over the last few years, but essentially it's telling them to be considered masculine, to be considered attractive, they Mm. be muscly. Sort of Chris Hemsworth sort of thing. You always bring him up. (laughs) 
I do. I like Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> what can I say? Can I ask you, in the body confidence sort of bracket, was there any one link between any of these countries that you could see that was like, like whether women were paid just as much as men in these countries or whether there was, you know, more successful marriages or something that there was there any link between any of these countries that you could see that made them much happier with themselves than anyone else? Not particularly. What we did find was that individuals living in more rural sites tended to experience greater body appreciation. We also found that individuals who were single tended to have greater body appreciation compared to individuals who were married. Once, wow. In terms of the single thing, we, we think that people who are single might have greater time, greater ability, yeah. greater opportunity mm. to engage in work that promote well, time for the gym <laughs> or nobody says you look rubbish in that don't wear it <laughs> not so much time for the gym more that i think they have great opportunities to look after the body and to care for their body mm. things mm. like doing i don't know going out into nature or spending time doing some yoga or physical exercise and, and so on mm. in terms of rurality again one of the kind of key findings from the research literature shows that people who live in, in more rural sites tend to experience more positive body image one of the mm. reasons for that might be that we've in previous work, we've shown, for example, that spending time in nature helps to promote more positive body image. So greater access to kind of nature and rural sites might be one one reason for that. Well, I think you just tend to kind of move around more when you're in nature as well, mm. don't you? I mean, I always go for long walks when I'm in the countryside. Mm. Historically, humans have always been a bit dissatisfied with their bodies. Mm. I and mean, if, if you look back over time, you know, corsets... Uh, well, women foot binding, have. all of this kind women of stuff. Women have. Yes. I, I well, they... I just don't. Do you think the men have finally caught up? I, I mean, don't know. The... But it's just interesting because it doesn't seem to be a new phenomenon. So, I mean, a lot of people might say, oh, well, this is to do with social media or it's mm. the modern world, blah, blah, blah. But there's always been this tendency for humans to try and sort of change, basically themselves. reshape mm. their physical. Mm. I mean, what is that, do you think? I would challenge that. I don't think it's a natural phenomenon that has always exist and existed mm. across time and across eons. We know, for example, at least since the 1920s, that rates of negative body image have increased. So we know even in the short mm. term that that increase is evident. If you go back far enough in time, you'll find attitudes towards the body are much more freewheeling. I think now there is a much greater pressure to focus on your aesthetics, to focus on what you look like, and to use that as a cultural value. The other thing I would say is I think rather than kind of placing the onus on the individual and saying they've always been dissatisfied. I think it's much more important to look at the kind of societies and look at the kind of systems in society that tell you or send you the message that you are inadequate. And that messaging only really began in the early 1920s when you have the kind of first magazines that were aimed at women and telling them about weight loss. And if you don't lose weight, you're not going to find a husband, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Also, you have the first kind mm. of Hollywood films that depict women yeah. thin as being attractive. Mm. It's also during that early period in the 1920s up into the 1940s that you see the first kind of practices that are aimed at extreme dieting, mm. for example, and weight loss pills and medication that women could take to lose weight. All of that didn't exist pre-1920s. So. Mm -hmm. Is it to do with the power of advertising, do you think? There's that create an, a need, then you satisfy the need through buying your product. I think it's much more than just advertising. I think it's beauty systems. I think it's the beauty industry it's, as a whole. I think it's patriarchal systems that tell women you are worthless as an individual unless you work on your appearance. And it's mm -hmm. a way, in my opinion, for systems in society to tell women to not to worry about equality, not to worry about things like mm -hmm. gender equality, but focus on your appearance instead. And it's mm -hmm. a way for systems in society to kind of challenge and, and kind of manage the status quo rather than allowing for things to, to change. 
I think one thing that has changed over the past three or four decades is that the marketing and the kind of beauty industries have realized, hey, there's this whole segment of society that we've never kind of tackled before. We should be targeting them as well. And that's why you see an increase in rates of naked body image among men mm. now as well. And social media, just the constant sort of self-reflection. I mean, when I was growing up as a teenager, I never saw a photograph of myself for months to, you know, there was maybe a picture of me at Christmas looking red-eyed, <laughs> having had too much pudding. But there was Disappointed no, you know, for constant, your presence. I mean, now my yeah. children, our children, they're yeah. always looking at themselves on. And that must have an effect, mm. surely. I'll give you the kind of short answer first. The, the short answer mm. is complex. And the reason why it's complex is because psychologists don't tend to distinguish or don't tend to often distinguish be between different forms of media in terms of the effect that it has on negative body image. Mm. We talk about the media as one important source, but we also talk about parents as being an important source. We also talk about peers as being an important source of messaging about negative body image. If you're a young child working out how much to eat and what you should look like and how you should relate to your to other people, that messaging comes pr predominantly from your parents. It doesn't come from social media at a very young age. If you're in your teens, for example, a lot of the messaging, again, about who is attractive, what you should look like, fat talk among women, for example, again, comes mm. from peers. It doesn't often come from social media. Obviously, mm, you come, when, when you're mm. coming into later life, social media and the media in general is important. Having said that, I think social media has made it much more acceptable to allow for a culture of appearance to become much more emblematic cross-nationally, across the mm. globe, that you focus so much on appearance now. And the, the kind of language often used is, I think, highly problematic. Having said all that, I think social media also does allow for spaces to challenge those kind of talk, that, that kind of messaging. Mm. So I don't think it's all negative. And I think I worry sometimes when people say, well, it's all social media. Actually, social media has lots mm. of positives as well. It allows people to, to challenge, to talk about, to discuss and to kind of communicate in ways that we haven't had opportunities to do so in the past. Well, I mean, it stops people from being very lonely for mm. a start, which yeah. is always a good thing. But do you think the idea that the whole sort of social media idea that embracing your curves and the idea mm. that they're trying to promote the idea that we don't look all the same, do you think that's not coming through? It's like the idea that sort of one Lizzo doesn't make a summer. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just the idea that everyone is trying to say, you know, well, embrace your curves. You can be any shape you want to be. Well, clearly due to your, your survey, that seems yes, not... Yes, but to be... one minute they're saying that and then the next minute, you know, they're showing videos, you know, someone like Kim Kardashian, mm. who is entirely modified. I mean, the acceptance of modifying yourself mm. surgically has really changed, hasn't it? I think it's much more general than that. I mean, if you look at the, the kind of body positivity movement, you're right, the messaging is incredibly complex, but it's also contradictory. Mm. On the one hand, they'll say, mm. love yourself. On the, on the other hand, they'll say, actually, if you fail, it's your fault. So the kind of onus mm -hmm. becomes on self, it becomes about self-blame. It becomes about the individual taking responsibility for how they feel about themselves. And that, I think, is the mm. problem with the messaging. It doesn't challenge structures in society that tell women or tell men that this is you're inadequate if you don't want to work on the body. I think the other mm. big problem is it doesn't challenge the underlying message, which is that you have to work on the body. You have to engage in body practices and beauty practices that mm. transform how you look like in order to be accepted, if not as masculine mm. and feminine, then at least as human. I think that is the underlying mm. problem. Even the body positivity movement doesn't challenge that message. It doesn't tell people that if you want to disengage from beauty practices as a whole, that's mm. absolutely fine. It doesn't say that. It still says you have to work on the body. You have to love yourself. Mm. If you fail, then it's your fault. Yes, yeah, so you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you fail to love yourself, there's something wrong with you. And if you, if you, it's, mm. just, it's very strange, isn't it? Well, what's one thing we can do to improve that as a concept? I mean, turn off our telephones, go for a jog. I, I mean, I think what you said <laughs> earlier about it being 
when I asked you about social media and you said, well, actually, it's to do with parents and your peers. I think individually, as parents, we can do a lot. For example, I have never once criticised my daughter's body shape or size because I was always criticised as a child by my father constantly for being too fat, to this, to that, not pretty enough, etc., etc. And it really damaged me psychologically in the sense that I found it very difficult to even, you know, accept, you know, I've never been able to accept my appearance. So I deliberately have never, ever commented on either of my children's appearance physical because I just think it's really important that you don't do that. Imogen and I are sort of in our 50s and we grew up in a culture where people were always passing personal comments about, mm. oh, you're too mm. this, you're too that, da, da, da. And I think, you know, how important is that? How important is that just being mindful when you're a parent that you shouldn't put these little worms into people's heads at a very delicate stage? I'm really sorry to hear about your dad, by the way. That's, that's an awful thing to hear. <laughs> no, he's, <quite. laughs> um, he's a running theme. He's a, he's a tricky, <laughs> tricky old fellow. But, he, you know, he did say that to me all I the time. I know he did. I know he did. And, yeah. you know, and because, you know, when you're young, you know, your brain just, it just sticks. It yeah, doesn't, you yeah. know, you can't rationalise it. You can't, you know, because he's like God to you, right? Mm. So then God is telling you that you're not mm. pretty enough. You're not thin enough, etc., mm. etc. I think you're right. I don't think there is a single answer here. I, I think parents have a responsibility to challenge some of the kind of talk that they have with their children, how they talk about things, not just about beauty, but also about things like food and how they relate to food. Mm. And that's a really important thing that needs to change. And I think we are starting to see some change happening. I think individuals mm. can take responsibility for how they look after themselves. I think one of, I, I know I've said this a few times that focusing on, on your body's functions rather than focusing on your body's aesthetics. Mm -hmm. I mean, simple things anyone can do, engaging in physical activity. It doesn't have to be doing going to the gym. It can just simply be going for a walk. helps you understand how your body feels and moves. Going, mm -hmm. Spending time in nature is another one. And also ensuring people have access to nature is really important as well. There are all kinds of things people can do. Learning how to be more self-compassionate, learning how to be more mindful, all have been shown to promote a healthier body image. So there are all kinds of things individuals can do. My issue here is that I think we can talk about these things for individuals, for families, but unless you start to challenge what's happening in society and why these structures mm. exist in society, why marketers are allowed to get away with telling individuals you are deficient in some way unless you buy some new deodorant or buy some new clothes or buy some new shoes, those are the messages I think that are really insidious. And you can protect individuals within families. You can individuals can do as much as they want to protect themselves, but ultimately they're still going to live in a society that tells them you are deficient somehow if you don't engage in these beauty practices. So I think mm. ultimately there are going to be multiple things that we need to do. There are individual responses, responses there are family responses, peers, how they negotiate with themselves. Peer schools will have a, a, a kind of a job to do here as well. But ultimately it's going to be a political, it's going to be a social, it's going to be an economic response to what's happening in wider society. Mm. I also think we sort of see our bodies as something that you do battle with rather than you're being part, yeah, part of a team. Yeah. So the idea that there is no you and your body, it's just you yeah. and you're a team together. I remember Candace Bushnell saying that to me once. Yeah. She's saying you do realise that you two have come together right at the very beginning and this is a journey yeah. of the pair of you. And if you try and separate yourself and start having an argument with your body, this is just not going to work. <laughs> That's what true. you do is what you have to look after it, love it, and keep it functioning as best you can. Well, it's like your home, isn't it? Yes. You would, you know, and you know, you wouldn't fill your home with rubbish and stuff and shout at yeah. it all the all the time. And, and yet, for some reason, we do. That yes, you're a team. Body. You're a team. It's the two of you against the rest of the maybe, world, or one. Maybe one of you. My my ex husband always used to used to drive him around the bend. That I always used to rearrange the furniture in the. Yeah. 
yes. Maybe that was my expression <laughs> of my own self-loathing, taking, taking interior design yeah. form. The, the technical yeah. term for that is embodiment. So we talk about being embodied, so understanding how yes. to habit your body and learning to live within your body. But I think what also might help is to engage in what we call body acceptance for others. So learning to understand that other people have issues with their bodies as well, but accepting them mm. for who they are physically. And like you say, Sarah, this is really important within families, learning to be to accept our children, learning to accept mm. all, all the people we come across in our daily lives, accepting them for who they are. One simple change that anyone can make rather than saying, you look nice there, you can simply talk about what they their characteristics, talk about their personality. Mm. You seem like you're having mm. a nice day today. It's a very different way of engaging with someone than to say you look You nice. look happy. Mm. Yeah. You look happy, darling. I am very happy. <laughs> <laughs> We're all happy. Well, thank you for that. It's fascinating. Thank it's you, fascinating. Yeah. I hope you get to use your research for mm. something like, I don't, know, I don't know, I hope some government minister rings you up and invites <laughs> you in to have a long chat and yes. do some policy work. Yes. Thank you very much. That was Viren Swami, Professor of Social Psychology at Anglia Ruskin University. Our next guest is the author and friend of the show, Daisy War, who has got a new book out called Old School Ties, which is part of her Toad Hall series, and is here to talk to us about it. But I suspect we'll also perhaps talk about some other things that she's interested in. Yoga, tarot, in the, uh, yes, in the way that tends to happen I'm just going with to Daisy. Give the list will go on. Yeah. So buckle up is what I say. <laughs> Welcome, Daisy. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Hello. We had you on for the first in the series, mm. I seem to remember. Well, I didn't in come the on. Crypt you, with were, the candlestick. You, you were lovely and said very magnificent things about it. I think there was one you were all sitting on a sofa. It was, you, oh, that's right. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. Yeah. But yeah. by the it way, just, funny, just the before one. we talk about Daisy's book, can I just say, in the oh. press release, which is brilliant, there's a list of people who can't get enough of Daisy's books, <laughs> of which both you and I are quoted, which is brilliant, yeah. although they spelt my name wrong. Oh. But oh, always do that, boring. Imogen. Yes, anyway. It's just because you have such a difficult name. It is, but we can't get enough of Daisy's books. No, no I can't get enough of Thank Daisy's you. books. Good. I'm just, no, I'm they are actually quite reaffirmed. In, in, a, in an otherwise miserable and sad world, mm. they oh. are a little joy, a little yes. bit of joy. And a bit of not taking things too seriously. Exactly. Yes. So this new one is set in Rome? Well, it's a little bit set in Rome. It's set in some of these amazing gardens uh, called Nympha, which are quite famous just outside Rome. Also set at this very big grand house in Yorkshire where all of them are basically set. It's this big family that has this very grand house in Yorkshire. But I got a bit bored of writing about the big grand house in Yorkshire, so I took them all to Italy, where I spend a lot of time, to this magnificent garden, which is half Roman ruins, half medieval ruins, half a sort of pleasure garden. Mm. And so I put a few murders in there. Does this mean you have to go to Italy a lot? Well, yes, even more than I do. That's anyway. awful yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. But there's something brilliant about Italy that makes the English absolutely preposterous. And I'm not sure why. <laughs> what is it? Do you mean they're frumpy? No, 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 not frumpy. No, 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 funny. No, funny. Okay. No, no, because... I do feel a bit frumpy. No, 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 I think Italy makes us pretentious because we pretend to be able to speak Italian and we pretend to know lots about Italy. Un poco di musica. Or art. People get quite tasked. Yes, they do. Actually, in fact, the tourists in Rome, don't they, the English ones, they all wear these ludicrous straw hats like they're out of the... What was that thing called A Room with a View? Yes. movie. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. So there's something brilliant about taking the English to... And there's, and there's all those wonderful old Sloanes who go and do that art course in yeah, Florence. In Florence, yes. yes. In Florence. Thing, but yeah. I, I have to say, the English and the Italians do have quite a good affinity. I think they, they do, really do. There's a sense of humour, isn't yeah. there? There's a, well, the English love the Italians. The, and the, Ita- the Italians are very <laughs> fond of the English because we're very organised. We sort of tend to be all things that they're really not. We have relatively stable government. We pay our taxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you get her started? Oh, don't even get me started. By the way, I love Maloney and she's not a fascist. 
<laughs> so tell us a bit about the book. It's set in Italy and without telling us yes. exactly what happens. Well, basically it's a more. collection it's a collection of I suppose eccentrics and potential murderers and potential murderees who all get together. Actually, it sort of begins at a at this grand house in Yorkshire where they're all having a, a shoot as in a, hmm. a pow pow killing pheasant shoot. It so happens that all the people who've been invited to this shoot were also at the place in Italy, in Nympha, where this murdered body was discovered in the lake, looking like a floating grapefruit. So that's how it all begins. And all the characters are, are sort of... The thing I hate more than anything about anyone ever is prissiness. Yeah. So the main thing is that they're not prissy. They're all a bit excessive in one way or another. And I love them all, even though... And do you puncture the sort of pomposity of quite a lot? That's the main, so, yes. yes. There's, There's a lot of that. The pea shooter yes. the class. That's my main role in life. <laughs> and when I die, I want to be buried with a pea shooter in my hands. So. But when you're doing a sort of a whodunit, how do you plot it? Do you plot it backwards? yeah. You have to, otherwise you get yourself in such a pickle. Okay. But actually, I think you have to slightly do that with any novel. But with, with a murder story, massively you have to. And you have to work out... I mean, it's quite good fun because there's an element of sort of Sudoku in it. You just yes. have to work out, oh, well, they think they're there, but they are there, but there has to be a clue that they were actually there and that person might have done it that per- And you have to kind of... Because a minor, it's like it's fun. And the point is, whoever does the murder usually gets away with it anyway because the whole point is it's just, oh, for God's sake, stop fussing. That's my kind of mantra in life. So even to the point where just stop fussing when people get murdered. But anyway, so the point is they all have to have... I've actually, this is such a long sentence, I forgot where I was going with it. But the point is they all <laughs> have to have motive. had a motive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also not only a motive to murder, but also a reason to be murdered because you don't yes. really know who's going to get murdered either. So right. Good fun. As a author, you're supposed to be a tiny bit ahead of your reader. Yeah, massively. Yes. Ahead of, you're supposed to be massively well, no, ahead I always, of reader. But, but I think the reader's supposed to be able to think, well, actually, I know who it is. I always think that's the skill of a good detective model is that you trick the reader into thinking that, they actually, yeah. that they're think, actually cleverer well, but, than but, you. But, yeah. but, but, yeah. Well, yes, but I think if they think they know, no, then it's all lost. They're not going to finish it. No, no, no. So no, you no want but, to say, yes, I'm pretty sure I'm yeah, cleverer yes, than anyone else yeah. and I've got it. Yes. But I've got to keep yeah. reading to get to the yeah. end. Because the thing is, if you completely lose track of who you think the murderer is, then you get bored and you don't care and you don't read the book. Yes. Yeah. So, so these sort of books are, I mean, you've been writing for years and years and years. <laughs> and is this now your genre that you have decided to uh, No, I'm writing to... something completely different now. But, oh, okay. but the other thing with these murder stories is the main thing that I love doing, again, is this pea shooting thing. And so they're all these, what I like doing is writing characters and dialogue and it's all jokes. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of it is just to make people laugh. Right. And whereas I used to write years ago, you know, rom-com chit licks. Yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, the murder is like a hanger on which mm. everything else goes. A funny yeah. story, yeah. just to kind of make people yeah. laugh and keep people turning the pages. Yeah. That's so. And the book that I'm writing now, I just sit there rocking with laughter. I may be the only person who ever reads it, and certainly whoever gets the joke. And it's pretty nutty. This one's all got magic in it. But comedy is much harder to write than people actually think I it think is. I think social comedy is, it, yeah, is, is... It's really difficult. And there's a very sweet little message that you've written towards the back of the book. But we'll be going to talk about the back of the book uh-huh. a bit later. But about how you were actually quite miserable when you were writing it and how difficult it is to write something when you're not feeling it. Yeah, but that's funny, though, because actually it's funny with humour in particular. I remember I was, I was very, very gloomy about the state of the world and mm, everything. I remember, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, and I don't want to get all poncy about it, but when I'm writing, you know, you go into a th- thing, you go mm. into a... Th- so I can sit feeling unbelievably miserable about the state of the world. Then I'm writing this thing, and I and I was I wrote that a lot of that in... I used to write a lot in the London Library, and then they got so mincy and fussy about masks, I had to stop going there. But so I wrote a lot of it in there. Uh, and so from this kind of depth of gloom, I'd sit doing this writing. I was on quite a diet day. And I'd find, you just laugh. I mean, I've always 
I don't know how, but I have always laughed aloud at my own writing mm. while I'm writing it. That's so very encouraging. Kind of yeah. But you see, but I think laughter. reading is about escaping the real world. So yeah, that's why writing, then writing yeah. is the same, yeah. isn't it? But do you think you've got better writing novels, at writing anyway. comedy than you have? I mean, I have read some of your spoken, it's brilliant and it's extremely funny. And mainly the tiny vignettes of characters that you've written. India, who likes suntans and parties, which is it could be said of me. Yes, <laughs> I wonder. Uh, which made me laugh. There's nothing out wrong with that. Names begin with I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. maybe it's just me. Suntans no, and parties, and it's very, very funny. There are lots of really good little tiny apposite jokes in the book. Do you think you've honed your craft more? I mean, I presume I have. I've been doing it for so 10, long. Ten thousand hours and all weird. that. Yeah, exactly. Do you think? Do you, I, I love the fact that it's about posh people, and I think that now posh people are the only people You're that you can take. The piss out of. It's a shrinking yeah. pool, well, isn't it? You read for this one. <laughs> well, do you know what? I am amazed. I am amazed. I'm, I'm still allowed to be published, actually. <laughs> I have to say so. So no, I. But the previous posh one I did, I was sensitive. I remember. Read, yes. I was furious about that. And actually, the one before that, I was sensitivity to me. I think on this one, they've just given up. Let's just, <laughs> oh, sod it. Let's put it out. <laughs> Let's just hope no one reads it. But I, I think quite a lot of people like reading slightly risque too. stuff. I mean, you could just write a book about Karens, couldn't you? Yes. That would be allowed. Uh, yeah, or, you would. But, that, yeah, but they're, they're the last. So or flat middle-aged like, men, I suppose yeah. they're allowed. I actually just generally white people who just say, Oh, well, that was so depressing. But, you know, I go into the Waterstones now, and actually I know I'm sort of sort of rabidly anti-woke. It drives me insane. But I go into the... And all I feel are these bloody titles haranguing me for not being the correct sort of victim. And it's just yeah, it's exactly. so boring. It's like, I want to read a novel. I don't want to get told off from the beginning to the end. I just want to escape. The... Maybe that's why there are so many fantasy novels these days. You just invent creatures. That, and then you can't get and told then, off. And then you can't yeah. offend anybody. Yeah. What do you think? Do you Possibly. Think but I know, but it's, so it's, it's fine to be very, very rude about posh people. Yeah. But actually, I quite like being one. I quite like posh people. <laughs> Well, they have quite thick skins. <laughs> well, they've had to, haven't they? My God. <laughs> but also, I wanted to ask you about <clears throat> someone else you like. Oh, yes. <laughs> Could it be? So, is it, is so it, is it? there's a brilliant bit at the end of this book, which is the acknowledgement. It says, it was pretty gloomy while I was writing this book. I had to dig quite deep to find the funny side. I did, rest assured. So from this tiny corner, on behalf of the many millions around the world who felt the same way, I want to thank... <laughs> Novak Djokovic. Oh, yep. Novak, can you hear? Can you <laughs> Novak, hear? I hope you're listening. He has become a beacon of courage and yes, humour and grace and hope in some quite disappointing times. He's also the goat. Amen. So do tell us about your I love. I like the amen particularly. Yes. I, I have to and say. And yet again, yesterday he was again. He's phenomenal. He just beats every record. He was so dignified about being turned into public enemy number yeah. one and treated really very, very shoddily. Given clearly he minds very, very much about his tennis, that he was willing to sacrifice that on the principle of bodily autonomy and with such elegance, never ranting like I do, never yeah. anything, just politely refusing to take it. And then I get really depressed when people don't realise how wonderful he is. I somewhere, I don't do any journalism anymore. I had to put it somewhere. I can't just bore everyone I meet forever until the I day I die. I literally laughed out loud when I read it. I just thought, oh my God, how did that well, get made? Maybe Djokovic will put his name to your next book. Oh, bless him. Maybe he'll sign And then he could be one of the people who, sign who can't live, who can't get enough. Can't get enough. He'll be one of who can't get enough of Daisy <laughs> Wall's book. That would be quite fun. Anyway, back to Tarot. The other books of yours, the Tarot Detective oh, ones, yeah. which I, I absolutely... did under another name. Yes, yeah. which yeah, were yeah. brilliant. Um, what was the name? Evie Hart. Evie Why Hart. did you do that? 
Well, you might identify with this. I've been doing a, a column in the Sunday Times for a long time with actually, I was felt so overexposed. I just wanted mm. to hide under a rock. But at the same time, I couldn't stop writing. Can't stop writing. Like this one mm. I'm writing at the moment. You know, I, I swore after that one, after this old school tide, I was so depressed about the whole human race and the whole world and everything. I thought, I'm never going to write again. That does it. I lasted, I think, about four months. Oh, less than that. <laughs> you get to ring me up. I feel my fingers are itching. <laughs> Yeah, so I did it under another name anyway. They were very good, but Daisy and I studied together at the London College of Psychics. So when I did my tea leaf reading and palmistry, you did tarot. Yeah, and actually did it really, really well. Became a a tarot. Did you get to the stage where you wouldn't sort of do anything without putting a card? I'm not far off that now. Really? Well, I have. I've slightly pulled back, but but yeah, no, I do. And I very much take the cards advice on. Pretty much everything, yeah. But you now do read for other people. And I do. I've just, I've just done one, actually, this afternoon. It was a girl sitting in a car park in Singapore. What? Are you on the internet? Can I book an appointment? Yes, you can. Yeah, you can. On my on my website, you can. There's tarot, oh, yoga, okay. novels. Wow. Or actually novels, tarot, yoga. <laughs> Important difference. <laughs> and also, as part of all of that, you also started doing yoga as well. Yeah, but you've yeah, been doing yeah. yoga for years. I've been doing yoga for years, but it was only again goes back to that lockdown. I was yeah. so, so angry for two years that I actually couldn't sleep for two years. I, I was also very angry. Right. Well, mm. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people were yeah. just. And in the end, you have this anger. You something you have to do something with, it, otherwise it eats you up. Mm. And and actually, yoga is very good. It's very it, rather than just as a kind of form of exercise, but as a way of meditating and. Well, it's physical and meditation. It. Mm. it is physical meditation, but actually, then you yeah. take on board the actual meditation as yeah. well, and the whole process of. And it's a way of. Well, so it gives well, you just really nice arms. Yeah. Really right, nice arms. For the listeners, we should we should get a camera in really just yeah. just, just yeah. to film your arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We might. Quite, why yeah. don't we model them later? <laughs> My God, that's cool. <laughs> but uh, I had a yoga teacher who went to um, prison for GBH. And yeah. Do you remember? I told yeah, you yeah, this. yeah. It's very and, good. This. Uh, and he's, he said to me when he, he started learning yoga well in prison, and then he said, oh, "He so, wasn't a yoga teacher when he did the GBH." No, 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 no. So no. I was thinking, that's, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's not wrong. very meditative. That's a very good advertisement. No, no, no. <laughs> so he he said what having learned yoga was it taught him a breath between action and reaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all about that that small yeah. hiatus where you think, yeah. "Should I react?" But in a even bad way more fun than that yeah. is in that breath. It's not just a breath. Because in that breath, what you're supposed to do, and if you can do it often enough, it's to understand that none of it's sort of real anyway. Exactly, yeah. That, I always just find yoga exhausting. Yeah, well, well you, you, just, you, just, you just have shavasana the whole time. Which yeah. is to shavasana's the, wonderful The corpse well. pose. Yeah. yeah, I know that's yeah, just that, Which is sleep. just a snooze. But, <laughs> but no, I, I, I've tried very hard to get addicted to yoga and I failed. I don't Where know did why. You, what kind? What, I've done you... so many types of yoga, haven't I, over the mm. years. Oh, really? I just don't know. I, I, I just can't get past those ridiculous, horrible sun salutations. Well, yeah, they oh, are the beginning. Yeah, I hate them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, they're I quite essential. <laughs> I get angry. Quite do you? Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Oh, well, yeah, that's but I mean, again, that's that. all part. I of get well. angry. Exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I get the whole angry. Point of it is yeah. you deal with. Yeah. You get. I get to leave it, it on the mat, Sarah. I can't leave it on the mat. I can't leave it on the mat. No, I've had various lovely yoga teachers over the year try to convince me that yoga is the solution to all my problems, and I just get angry. Yeah. Well, I used to get quite sad. Did a lot of crying. I on used my to mat. the very early mm. ones. I used to cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very yeah. good for you. No, so maybe I should just keep trying. Well, maybe we should yes. just read this and do nothing. 
Daisy's yeah. book. <laughs> Have a glass of wine. Have a glass yeah. of wine. Read old school ties. A bar of chocolate. Yeah. yeah. And read old school yeah. ties. Yeah, nice. Yes, yes, I think that's a very good idea. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and also hope that Mr. Djokovic oh. becomes aware yeah. of, of. I keep thinking, how can I? Uh, maybe if I hashtag him on Instagram. Maybe you should write. Maybe you should <laughs> write. Just it. being his stalker. Is this a, is this is this, this is, posh stalking? This is going to be the beginning of a long posh stalking it's journey. Posh stalking, yeah. isn't it? You should write a book yeah. called Letter to Djokovic. About, <laughs> yes. Then he'd have to listen. That might work. Yeah. I, I think that. Perhaps I'll just rename the one I'm writing now. <laughs> Letter yes. to Djokovic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a very good idea. <laughs> Well, on that note, Daisy, that was Daisy Ward. <laughs> stalker. Um, yeah. No, what you meant was author. Author, author stalker, author. Stalker, yoga, tarot. <laughs> Whose new book, Old School Ties, is out today. And we will put a link to it in the show notes and maybe a picture of Daisy's arms. That's a very good idea. Thanks for listening this week. If you enjoyed the show, try some of our other episodes available wherever you got this one. And if you want to get in touch, tweet me at Westminster Wag. You have been listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.